Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea, and today we have Dr. E again on um, for this episode to talk about adults and selective mutism. Welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad to have you again. Well, you know me, I love it. And the more <laughs> I can chat about SM and help others understand from my years of experience, uh, the happier I am. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I feel like this is an important topic to talk about adults because I feel like so much is geared towards children. And sometimes we forget that if people aren't treated, they do grow up to continue to have selective mutism as an adult. Absolutely. And I think as the years have gone on and as much awareness as we're trying to get out there, I would say has improved in terms of adults coming forward for many, many years we rarely had adults coming forward. And part of that might've been that they kind of labeled themselves as socially anxious or didn't know what was going on. And from the awareness and the public, you know, the education we're doing through Selective Mutism Association, through the Smart Center, et cetera, et cetera. I feel as if, you know, adults are, that have selective mutism are almost feeling relieved that mm-hmm. this makes sense now. And it's giving a name to something that they didn't understand, which was very confusing. I've even had people come message me um, through the podcast, like saying like, I've never heard about this until like now. And now they're an adult and they just pretty much are self-diagnosing themselves as like, oh, that's what was going on with me. It's interesting. Right. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. I've said this to you before. A lot of times when I'm speaking, I'm Speaking from all my my experience in terms of what what I see, it's not from what I've read in a book. And so one of the things I wanted to say is that I normally see two types of adults reaching out to us, or one is the adult that really wants help. You know, Mm -hmm. they're reaching out. I'm 37 years old. I realize this is what I've had my whole life and I don't know what to do. I feel... Um, I need help, but I don't know where to go and what to do. And I don't feel anybody understands me. Mm -hmm. So we get the adult being proactive, which is really awesome in that sense, because they're taking responsibility, they're taking ownership, and they're acknowledging I need help. And that's the first step in, in anything in terms of receiving help and getting help is being able to be receptive to it. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other type of adult where you have a caregiver, a parent, um, maybe a grandparent, a family friend, a spouse, um, if they have a spouse reaching out and saying, hey, my loved one has selective mutism, I really think this is what she has and I really need to get her help or get him help. And when I hear that, sometimes I think, okay, well, you know, does that adult want help? Right. The parent wants them to have help or the caregiver or somebody in their, lo- their life that loves them and cares about them, but really figuring out does that other, does that adult one help? So mm-hmm. that's where, you know, I, we have to really kind of figure that part of it out. Yeah. And then um, we also um, have adults that have selective mutism that have delays and whether it's from the lack of social communication all these years or true delays and other challenges that has prevented them from speaking and communicating. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of figure all of that out. Yeah. Um, so even the even the proactive adults that reach out, I when we're consulting with adults, we're realizing that many of them have had some of these kind of co-existing challenges that we see or the whys of SM that never were either diagnosed or were diagnosed, but never put together that if an individual had processing issues or speech and language issues or something like that, they they didn't address it together. And so they may not have overcome those other challenges or they weren't dealt with. And so they never linked them. And that has kind of prolonged their suffering and their avoidance. I think there's also like, you talked about having delays because maybe you missed out on social, um, just normal social development. And I'm sure there's also like deficits in certain life skills. Like you might not learn how to do certain things just because you're held back by the SM, I would think it would be hard to get a job or, um, and like develop those skills and even driving. I hear that one come up a lot in high, actually teenagers learning to drive. Oh yeah. We hear that a lot. And some of the adults, I mean, they could be 35, 40 years old reaching out. Some of them still live with their parents. Um, some 
are really struggling with relationships. They never, they really had a difficult time forming friendships and keeping friends. Yeah. And interestingly enough, most of the adults that we work with, they can speak. It's rare to find an adult that doesn't speak at all. If they Mm -hmm. don't speak at all, like meaning they just speak at home, there's a lot, there's a lot of other things going on that you really have to dive into. But the majority of adults speak, they just have a lot of challenges often as they get older with self-confidence, like you said, self-esteem, being able to make friends, keep friends, keep going after the job they want, reaching their potential, getting their driver's license, um, and really a very, very strong dependency on other adults in their life. Mm -hmm. And I often see the adults, like their caretakers, like they, you know, they may have a parent they're still living with. Um, solving a lot of their problems, helping them with everything. And often some of these adults that come forward don't have a lot of independence and they'll say, I don't feel independent at all. I feel really dependent on everyone. And I hate that about, Mm -hmm. I hate this. I I want to be independent. The majority of them will indicate some aren't, some are scared to death and they don't want to be independent. So you have to help them realize in order to kind of overcome this, you need to be independent. But we see so many caregivers, um, often parents, elderly parents sometimes, you know, if you have a 35-year-old, you might be 60 years old. And when I'm consulting, I'll often see the adult, every time a question is asked, even if it's directly asked to the adult I'm working with, the parent will jump right in. Yeah. Or the individual that's them will look right towards, you know, his or her parent or caregiver for the answer. So that kind of dependency that is existing. And that's something that has to be worked out too. Yeah. And that's hard. Even with like children, the parents also get stuck in their own cycle of behavior of rescuing. And I'm sure it's like even more ingrained um, the longer it goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The good news is um, the majority of caregivers and um, adults, they do want to change. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes when they've gone for therapy in the past or tried to get help, the, the goals, uh, were too great. They were yeah. too hard to accomplish. And so meeting them at their kind of level, their stage, yeah. their comfort level, having them kind of lead the process where you're guiding them, giving them that sense of control is a really big part of this as well. So they don't feel like you're telling them what to do, but right. you're more kind of working as a team as to what are your goals? What do you mm-hmm. want to do? Um, and sometimes we have them write that to us because sometimes even though they may speak, being able to articulate what they really want to do can be really difficult. So having them write out their goals, what are the, what do you want to do? What is hard for you? Yeah, Really kind of getting down there and the trenches with some of these adults and then say, all right, we're going to take one step at a time. And then we kind of work from their goals because sometimes the caregiver's goals are a lot different or right. um, a partner's goals are a lot different than their goals. Yeah. It's important to have like the actual individual's own motivations driving their treatment, I would think. Um, yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I bet another, I was going to bring this up too, um, like depression Um, is a big barrier, I'm sure, too. I think part of just not being able to socialize and um, speak in certain situations can be very isolating, and I'm sure that can lead to depression as well as other um, diagnoses, so that's probably a big barrier. Oh, absolutely. Um, It's interesting when you first start working with um, an adult and you see them, sometimes they will look not as put together, not as confident looking, they Mm -hmm. might slump, they might slump over, you know, they're just not confident when you first see them. And you do realize that this depression piece is there and their sense of self is really something they're struggling with. I mean, many of them have been socially isolated for so many years. They if they found jobs, some of them have found jobs, you know, in the back or office of an Mm-hmm. you know, and an accountant's office or yeah, someone's back seat. office, exactly. Yeah. Working in the background um, or ro- working at home. I mean, now with COVID, I mean, yeah. 
the pandemic, we're seeing more and more adults almost feel like, okay, well now it's okay to be at home, but, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's almost like a safe place, but they realize when you really talk with them that part of the reasons that they chose some of these, these jobs or areas that they're focusing on, um, perhaps they were, had an introverted, they are, they're introverted and they really want to be more isolated, but I'm amazed how many adults I communicate with and they really aren't necessarily reaching their potential. So Mm -hmm. that does lead to depression and more social anxiety because, you know, the more you avoid, the more anxious you get, the more depressed you get. It's like this vicious cycle. And they aren't feeling as if they've reached their either academic, if they're in graduate school or their occupation potential, they realize they've missed a lot and they feel sad because I missed out on this Mm -hmm. and I missed out on that. And they have some awareness and how SM may have limited their potential and some hang their hat on that and, you know, say, well, because I didn't do this, I'm not going to do that. And we have to help them and make them realize that, okay, here's where we're at now and we can make huge changes and it doesn't have to be like this forever. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is how you felt before, but let's figure out ways that you can accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish just one step at a time. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of it, I've heard from a few adults and they have, even teenagers have said like, oh, I do struggle with depression or I see someone like a therapist for social anxiety or another um, kind of anxiety disorder. But it's almost like there's so many um, professionals out there that still don't know or they're not specialized in selective mutism, so or they don't understand it fully and they're finding like they feel misunderstood or that's still a barrier in the way of um, getting treatment for these other problems. So Yeah, I- so yeah. that's interesting that you say that because it makes me think about what I said in the beginning that the individuals that come forward, some don't have any quote unquote delays. They don't have any challenges with language or they don't have challenges with like processing, things like that. Because I have worked with a lot of adults that when you look past at their past testing and stuff like that, um, you see all that, but Mm -hmm. their social, they may have social anxiety that's just, you know, was there all along, but now with their selected mutism, how to progress them into more um, initiation, elaboration um, in speech. So yeah, they can go places and they will work on those goals of just going places and working on some of their social anxiety. Mm-hmm. But you're right, because so few professionals really understand this, the struggle with initiation, elaboration, conversation starters, knowing what questions are going to be asked, what your answers would be, and really working through what we call action plans and planning those social outings and being ready for questions that come to them. Like those pieces are missing. Yeah. Um, And then you have the individual that does have some of those challenges and delays. Um, One of the biggest ones we see are still just processing issues that these individuals have had most of their life. And like I said, you look back on testing and needless to say, there was some processing issues. And Mm -hmm. so being able to carry on a conversation, being able to respond in a quick enough manner, all of that um, has been overlooked and only reinforced of their inability to respond. So that causes more depression, more social isolation, which is really why it's so important to do an evaluation to figure out why does this individual have selective mutism at 30 years old? Like why, why is it, why is it still there? what is going on. And we're amazed how many times we see some of these co-occurring issues. We see the kind of dependence on others, um, caregivers jumping in and answering before that individual had the chance. I mean, there's a lot of behaviorals, behaviors that you see in others that actually reinforce the mutism. So it's really important to really get a whole picture of an individual, not just trying to get them to speak. Of course. Because if they could, they would (laughs) have. Of course. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, It's hard to think about this too, just because normally there's research and there's like things to read about um, just this topic. I feel like there's nothing out there about adults. I had a really hard time today. I was looking for research and I think that's definitely important to be like looked into. (laughs) I feel like we need to understand 
I think it probably there are some differences between how you would treat it um, versus how you treat kids. But I think I'm sure you know more about this. You can tell us. Um, I th- I would think it would look pretty similar. Like the basic components of treatment would be similar. It's just the way you um, talk to a person maybe that might be different. Pretty Well, yes and no. I mean, I think one thing is how individuals age. And like I said, I mm-hmm. was looking through my webinar <laughs> and through the ages because I deal with, you know, little preschoolers all the way up to adults. And yep. that was one of my very favorite ones to do because it talks about the differences yeah. in how they present. I would say that if you were to think about it with younger children, you're really relying on parents to set mm-hmm. up the world and you're, you know, they may have what we call active goals where they're playing games or doing goals as they grow older to yep. older children and stuff, but you're really relying on teachers and caregivers to implement right. facilitate with the adults. You may be relying on caregivers, but it's more of the caregivers to pull back right. and to not reinforce that individual's lack of, you know, social communication um, interaction because they're so used to to rescuing and helping that they yeah. almost don't even know their role. So they've overcompensated all these years because they don't want their, let's say their child to suffer, even though they're an adult, they still try to protect. And that adult with SM will often have, um, will really lack um, skills on independence and self-confidence. So they'll go right back to, you know, contacting their you know, parents that has been there all their life to kind of help them and rescue them. And there's nothing wrong with support. I mean, let's face it. I mean, I have four adult children and they come to me when they need me and we work things out. But too often, a lot of the adults of the adults that I work with will Mm -hmm. rescue and save and almost enable rather than be. So they're looking for skills too. So now you're asking, instead of the adult to come forward and facilitate with younger children, you're having that um, caretaker kind of facilitate backwards, almost like pull back. Yeah. And we give the adults more active goals based on their goals, their needs, their wants. And with younger children, we kind of know play dates are important and small groups are important. Mm -hmm. And we facilitate how to ask a question and things like that. And a lot of the adults are afraid to go out and do things. So we will use their caregivers and train them strongly into how can you bring your adult child into communication or your adult partner into communication. So we have to train them. Yeah. Another piece that's really um, different is that even with younger children, when you're working on acknowledging and assessing and using, we use the bridge and where they are on the bridge with adults, it's so much more important. And as I said, most adults can speak. So they're usually in the verbal stage. You might use a parent to bring them into communication or a um, a, a partner or a friend to bring them into communication and, but you, but the adult usually can speak. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about setting these scenarios up and practicing them. Also, younger children tend to feel it's really hard, scary, really scary to use my words to communicate. Whereas adults, the older you get, the more that the behavior is really conditioned, Chelsea. Yeah. And it's more hard to do. So they've, they're used to going maybe even to a party, but not engaging and kind of sitting in the background or just kind of coming in, you know, late and standing and then leaving. They're not necessarily, they've learned how to kind of cope through almost in a maladaptive way. So they'll go places and do things sometimes, but it's, um, it's, it's a way of avoidance. I yeah. always use the example of being afraid to swim. Um, as you get older and you're afraid to swim, you might be running around the swimming pool, but the minute somebody tries to get you to get your feet wet, that's when the fear comes on. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So adults in the adults, um, individual's life will often enable their kind of maladaptive behaviors too. Um, and again, with younger kids, it's often games and rewards and stickers and like, you do this, you'll get that and fun activities. Whereas adults, it's, Hey, we're really like, what do we want to work on? Let's get down in the trenches and really work on the goals. And with younger kids, it's a lot more behavioral. Whereas with adults, teenagers and adults, there's a lot of CBT. It's really taken their challenging negative thoughts and changing them the kind of um, dealing with, again, younger kids, it's more external motivation. And as you get older, it, it changes. 
and reverses that where external motivation doesn't mean anything really. It's really mm-hmm. the internal motivation, you know, that's really, really important. So I think those are the big differences between younger and older kids. Um, I mean, and adults is that all of those things kind of flip. It's like a continuum. Yeah. I think this was in your webinar too. It's been a while since I saw it, but um, something, I think it's like psychoeducation. We kind of, that's focused on more um, with teens and adults. Like, obviously it might be harder for young children to understand like what's going on with anxiety and selective mutism. So is that something that's like more uh, talked about with adults? I mean, you mean psychoeducation in the terms like, of educating them to anxiety? Yeah, and just being like very open about what's going on. And- oh, well, you know, my philosophy is that individuals with any challenge need to acknowledge and be able to assess their challenges. If you yeah. can't talk about it in or necessary talk, that's kind of like no pun intended there, but deal <laughs> with it, being able to express it. Yeah. Um, then I don't know how you can overcome it in the sense of building long-term coping skills. There's no sense of control. Right. So being able to like very structured goals, knowing what they're working on, rating their feelings before I did this Mm -hmm. a goal, then what did it feel like if I had to do it again to help them realize that, you know, again, I talked about um, the cognitive restructuring and and identifying. I mean, a lot of the adults I deal with have a lot of self-defeating maladaptive thoughts. I can't do that. A lot of negatives. And so we help them flip it to a positive. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can't do that. But what if you can do it? Let's talk about how we can do that. Yep. Um, relaxation, meditation skills are really important in adults, because many adults, as we talked about, you know, the ramifications of untreated anxiety, you know, leading to worsening anxiety, other anxieties, um, depression, um, you know, social isolation, um, self medication with drugs and alcohol, I and mean, we yeah. see this. And so helping them be able to cope with their anxieties with, you know, even like I said, relaxation, meditation, but learning coping skills um, to me is really, really, you know, important and really using, I mean, CBT is huge with adults. That's the biggest piece of helping them overcome this. I love CBT. Yeah. 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 I know. So we're used to a very behavioral approach with uh, young children, but the older you are, older children, I'm very big with CBT and, yeah. and really helping them understand what they're going through and using the bridge to and rating feelings before and after and really kind of helping them reshape their thoughts because yeah. they they will be very negative and then they live this self-fulfilling prophecy of I can't, I won't meet anybody, I won't find a partner, I'm not gonna get mm-hmm. the job, I can't drive. And so sometimes I remember there was one particular consult I did with an adult. Um, he was about 28 years old. And I mean, every, everything out of his, uh, that he told me and was negative. There wasn't, I don't like that. I don't like those people. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. No, I won't do that because they did this. Or they said like very, very like, you know, this was recently and it was just the amount of negativity um, that, you know, we have to deal with that too. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, that's another thing is that negativity that I see sometimes with the adults and then um, almost a way to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like people or I, yeah. I don't like to drive. I don't like cars. Um, you know, everything is negative. So we we have to take that and like flip it to a positive. And it may not be, you know, driving we work on first or getting that job, but maybe it's, you know, a hobby that we start with. And uh-huh helping them figure out what do they really like to do in your spare time and kind of helping them in that way to be able to connect with others too. Cause that's, um, that's a really big piece. Um, I remember working again, this was a gentleman, he had started graduate school and I, I tell this story at my conferences and camp a lot that um, he actually came forward and he really, really, really wanted help. And um, what he was in grad school, he picked a field where it was very isolating. He was the only guy in the program um, and he really wanted help. He wanted to find a partner. He um, wanted to have friends and, you know, he really enjoyed rock climbing. So he would go by himself to do rock climbing and it was a university and it was out West. And I remember um, there was a lot of that sort of outdoor activity and he just loved it, but he would go by himself all the time. And 
his goal was to socialize. So, you know, he, what was he going to do? He wasn't going to go up to strangers at rock climbing, but one goal we had was that he would put like a note up on the, the board that said anybody interested, like in his university going rock climbing meet at 4 PM at this place, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so he started a rock climbing kind of get together. And before you know it, he, that's where he found his friends. That's awesome. And so that's a really important part too, is unlike younger children where parents can set them up with play dates and take them to the park and do friendship groups and little get togethers and things like that with an adult or an older teen and adult, it's always, always, always the areas of high interest that lead to finding their people. It's always the areas of high interest. And mm -hmm. that's where they can make their kind of conversation. They can connect because it may not be, hey, how you doing? What are you doing this weekend? But it might be over the activity that they're doing. Yeah. So for example, with, um, you know, an individual that um, really likes ice skating. I mean, that's a pretty solo activity, but she loved to ice skate. And when she did ice skating at her ice skating club and did something similar where she found some people in her age and took lessons. So it wasn't about making conversation, but being in the presence of someone else or going mm -hmm. into um, some sort of like people that want to do book clubs or baking. It's finding those areas where others are there and the focus is what you're doing, not what you're saying. Right. That's a big, so like I said, yeah, like the newspaper club in a university, right? Like you don't have to be like, what are you doing this weekend? You want to get together, but it might be like, well, who wants to take pictures of the soccer team? And then the person raises his hand and then two people go together and they're taking photographs together. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's putting yourself and being willing to put yourself in some of these situations that again is individualized. We're not going to tell everyone to, to go and put a note up at their university, or we're going to ask them to join meetup.com or anything like that. Yeah. But it's really about finding their areas of interest and what can we do to help them at least move forward from where they are today. Yeah. I think it's easier to talk about things that you are passionate about. And yep. it's easier to talk to people who are interested in similar things. That makes sense. Yeah, no. Ab yeah, absolutely. And so it's always those areas of interest and volunteering is a safe thing that individuals could do, even if they go with a, uh, you know, a sibling or mm -hmm. a really, you know, a close friend to just do something. So they have their buddy with them when they go places, but yeah. really trying to, you know, um, I had this one adult I was working with that was pretty religious and. Um, she decided to volunteer at her church. And so she volunteered at her church. It was safe. It was small. She felt good doing it. And the goal was that she was going to do two events that month. And so she would like pass things out or even in the back of the auditorium or in the back of the church before she would help with things so that her goal was that where somebody else's goal might be something else that might be to make a phone call. It doesn't, I don't know. Well, nobody makes phone calls these days, do they? They go <laughs> on the internet and they search out where they need to go. But, you know, the one thing too is the skills that they need to learn. And a really powerful skill is being able to write things down and get ready for social encounters. Mm -hmm. So we call them like action plans. Where are you going? What can people ask you? What would your answer be? Uh -huh. What could you ask them? And really form these action plans to many different scenarios because you'll start to notice that the same questions are asked over and over. <laughs> That's true. Right? Yeah. There's you know, so many scripts. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And before you know it, you're seeing like every time you go to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts for coffee, it's the same questions, the yeah. same common questions. And so like I, like you were saying in the beginning, you know, you go for help for social anxiety, but it's really also in addition, but for many of these individuals that do have social anxiety, but how can you work through these conversations or these communications? Yeah. Situations. Yeah. I, I feel like that is important. I feel like sometimes, um, when I was little, I used to think of like scripts, like I used to try to imagine what the person would say back. And then when it's not what you were imagining, it throws you for a whole loop and you don't know what to say. You freeze up. So it's good to like brainstorm all different possible um, scenarios. Yeah. So, you know, when we're planning goals, another really um, 
interesting strategy that we work on is I call it watch, listen, and learn, look, listen, and learn is that, you know, going places and watching people and listening to what people say, like Mm -hmm. thinking about the conversations. And I've been amazed how many adults have said to me, wow, I really, you know, I learned a lot just by standing there and listening to people checking out and like of a store or at a party um, listening to what people were saying and kind of watching them. I mean, mm-hmm. you, it's so often these adults have avoided so many of these situations and they're so in their head that yeah. they don't really know what to say, how to say it, where to say it, when to say it. And they lose, they've lost these skills that they may not have been delayed with growing up, but mm-hmm. as they went years and years, not doing it, they feel really behind the eight ball and really, you know, anxious about it. So yeah that look, listen, and learn is something we do with a lot of the teenagers too. So it's just for them to be kind of aware of what's going on and what people are saying and where they're saying it. And even body language, you know, watching Mm -hmm. that seems subtle what I'm saying, but it's, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering with adults, do you see more of, um, how do I ask this? So with kids, you see the, like the fear and the freezing and, um, not being able to respond and I think we talked about how over time it kind of becomes comfortable I remember being this way when I was like pre-teens where certain situations I didn't feel nervous anymore like someone would ask me a question and I just wouldn't answer knowing I wouldn't answer and I felt like I had no control over it anyway um so I'm wondering do you see more of that with adults or do you find that they're verbal with like most people um they just have trouble like going and doing new things no I I agree with you I feel that it becomes an exaggerated form of what you just experienced that they find these comfortable places Mm -hmm. and these situations and that branching out is hard for them that their brand you know sometimes you like I said to you in the beginning that motivation that intrinsic motivation the more motivated um you are like one of the um adults I met um actually took a job far away in the country. He didn't want to be local near his family because he knew himself he needed to do these things. Of course, when he got out there, it was really hard for him. But Mm -hmm. so there you have a really motivated individual that saw that. And also, no, this is interesting. Um, Sometimes when you're around different people, you feel a certain way, right? Yeah. So in good intentions, being around a parent, let's say an adult being around a parent, that's somewhat, that's over loving, which we all are. I'm a parent. I love my, I would do anything. My kids are still babies to me, right? Even though they're adults, <laughs> yeah. you still see them as your children. And you, you know, what happens with a lot of the adults I work with is they want to be independent, but they don't know how. Mm-hmm. And the parents don't know how to let go of what yeah. they're doing. So we sometimes see the adults do better And I don't want any caregivers like writing into you and saying, I can't believe she said that. I feel, you know, that was horrible. I'm not saying that this should occur, um, but, you know, that that an individual should move away or by any means am I saying that. What I'm saying is that I have found that a lot of even teenagers and adults we work with will do better in their goals when their caregivers or people that they're with all the time are not there, not because those, they don't love those people, but because they see themselves almost in a weakened, not um, strength space with some of those caregivers, because that's how, that was their role. Yeah. And you get comfortable in deep? your bubble. Is it too deep what I'm saying, Chelsea? No, I know what you mean. I think part of it, I think part of it is like you learn how to function within your bubble. Like you're not used to having to branch out. Like you don't need to branch out because everyone around you and the environment around you is what you're used to. And you've learned how to maneuver it like that way. So I can see how you might have to branch out by if you're motivated to uh, yourself in the new environment. Yeah. Yeah. Or just have opportunities to like, instead of always go always like staying home when your parent like goes shopping and brings food back. If you're living at home or your partner, you go out and do it. Like have a goal of at least I'm going to go. And you know, well, I'm like, I had an adult I was working with. She was in her thirties. She wasn't comfortable at all going to public, but this was pre COVID, but wasn't comfortable at all going into a market and asking a question. You know, I always tell the adults, 
there's nothing that I can do in session that's going to be able to make you do anything that what we're going to do is learn about what your goals are. We're going to help you achieve those goals. And we're going to give you to help you develop those skills. But I can't go abracadabra. It's all over. You, there has to be exposure involved. And that means going into a store, going into a restaurant, trying, you know, you know, joining a club, going to class, doing the things, interacting, using hi, bye, yes, no, and thanks, common questions, action plans, like doing it. It's living uh-huh. it. Um, so we have to practice going up and asking for things, initiation, and how do we do that? Yeah. You know, writing a script and reading it, the pick caregiver, asking a choice to bring them in, whatever that is. I always tell families, because at our community camps, they're like the in-person ones are three to 17, right? Well, we're not yeah. treating the 17-year-olds in the same room as the three-year-olds, yeah. but the concepts are exactly the same. Right. It's just how you adapt them based on the age. Right. Uh, right. So the concepts of, you know, frontline engaging, handover, takeover, bringing them into communication by the way somebody else may question or if a proactive adult will write and read and plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, even things like elaborating on speech, like, again, somebody might say, oh, how? what's your name? Ralph. How old are you? 30. What do you do for a living? Um I'm a doctor, whatever, whatever they say, I don't know, but they're not elaborative. They're not initiative. They often, you know, and it doesn't make them feel good. So, because they know this and they can't initiate. And so yeah. it, it's very difficult. So helping them elaborate on conversations um, instead of just, hi, how are you? It's, mm-hmm. you know, hi, how are you? I am. And then going into a statement or I'm going to do this and helping them plan all of that, like yeah. literally taking situations each week in their life and working through them so that they can accomplish what they want. I'm amazed how these um, adults do and the teenagers do. You know, I get so frustrated all the time with, oh, once you reach a certain age, it's pretty much hopeless. They're never going to overcome it. I mean, if that were the case, you'd never have a new patient or client because you'd be still working with the older ones or you would be shut down because nothing works, right? Yeah. But in, in our world, like I see these adults literally change, like, and what I was saying where they show up, they sometimes show up where they're like, you could see the depression, you can see Mm -hmm. them feeling insecure, but as the sessions go on, they're sitting up more, they're doing their makeup, you know, their their hair looks different. They're wearing kind of clothes that you're like, Oh, where'd you get that? Oh, well, I went out to Abercrombie and Fitch and I got this, you know, top last week and I felt really good. And this was one of the things I rewarded myself with. Like you hear them being proactive with their goals and rewarding themselves and how it affects their self-esteem. So it's really cool. Um, You know, I I have so many examples I could go on. I know we can't talk (laughs) forever, but I'm thinking of another gentleman I worked with. Um, He loved to juggle he loved to juggle and he started a juggling club in high school. And when he went to college, he started a juggling club and he did. Yeah. He did really, really, really well being a leader. You know, he, he, so being a leader, like being the leader that people go to is actually something that more people than you realize can do. You know, Mm -hmm. you think about the socially anxious adults sometimes that, that is almost a wallflower, but no, I have plenty adults that when they're a leader, when they're the one that's the um, in charge, they actually rise like you can't imagine to right. the occasion. So yeah. they just need these opportunities and they'll send the emails and they'll be the contact for something. And you see them like leading the process. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, talking about what they like and their passion, they don't even need much more help than that. They just, oh, wow, I, you know, this is awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. I think part of it too is like just building, it's all building confidence. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. You have so many amazing stories of people doing awesome things. Well, it's just kind of cool. <laughs> and it, you know, it just sticks with you because, yeah. you know, you, you want to make a difference and you see that you like these individuals come to you and it's like, if you know that if they're going to do it, you know, you have what to give them, right? Mm-hmm. It's just their receptiveness to doing right. it. And, you know, for the caregivers or the partners that reach out, and, and I have to tell you, it's mostly caregivers. I, I know I've mentioned that a lot. And there are plenty of um, adults that 
aren't living at home and they're more mm-hmm. independent and some of them are in great relationships and they have great jobs. By no means am I saying they don't exist, but right. when it comes to reaching out to our center, if it's not the adult, it is a caregiver always. I've never had it where a partner of the person reached out. It's wow. always a caregiver, like a parent of an, an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going with the odds. Um, and so, yeah, so it's really about that intrinsic motivation and how much that adult wants help yeah. because no matter how much the caregiver wants them to get help, if that adult doesn't want help, I'm being honest, like you can't, there's just going to be limited amount. And then it's like, okay, well now we have to find something to motivate them. Yeah. And I think about my teenagers and my older teens that are, I'm not going to do this. Like, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. And you kind of come up with a reason why it's important. And so you give them examples of what um, I always give. One of my examples is uh, this particular boy that I worked with. He loved hockey and he loved nothing more than going to the hockey game. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Like, or one of the girls I work with, young women I work with, she loves horseback riding. And she, so I say to them, okay, well, you need new boots or you want to get tickets for the hockey game. Like, and your parent is not there or you're, partner's not like, how are you going to get that? How are you going to get those boots to ride the horse that you love or the tickets? Like, how are you going to do it? Let's talk through it. Let's walk through it. Yeah. And a lot of times, well, I won't go. Well, but you want to go, you want to ride that horse. So mm-hmm. you have to really talk to them about this. And then you start to find something that that motivates them, something that they really want to do or want. And you use that as a trigger, like a, like to kind of get them to go yeah. like, okay, well, let's talk about how you could do it. I'm not opposed to using, you know, a caregiver or somebody in your life to help you a friend. I'm not opposed to that at all. Let's talk yeah. about their involvement in your involvement. And yeah. so it's really meeting them at their level, at their yeah. place. I think such a big part of it is like feeling like you have some sort of control too. I think some people don't really understand what therapy is a lot of the time too. I think people are like afraid you're going to be thrown into something and have no control over what's happening to you. But in this case, you really are. It's all up to you how much you want to put into it. and That's what you're going to get out of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, a random question. I don't know if it's, yeah. um, I'm just curious because I recently saw someone on like all these Facebook groups was talking about how uh, their teenagers selective mutism started in like when they were 18 or something. I'm just wondering, do you see that ever? Like where people develop selective mutism that late or? So what we do see is that sometimes an individual may have been quote unquote quiet, Mm -hmm. but they weren't necessarily selectively mute in a comfort of their own tiny little school. Like, so to speak, they were in, they were with a bunch of people that they felt comfortable with. And then all of a sudden that situation changed. They moved, they went to a new school, but they always had a predisposition to this. Mm-hmm. challenge, but the environment wasn't conducive to true selective mutism. So I've seen that, yeah. but more times than not, it's been there. Like I said, it's been there, but you know, or, and again, we, you know, we talk about the association between trauma and selective yeah. mutism and, you know, I don't see that. I see that something may have scared a, an individual or made them uncomfortable, like, um, there's so many scenarios I have that could be a separate podcast on pervasive <laughs> mutism and how you treat it. That's another yeah. one Chelsea will do, but that would be awesome. Most, yeah. For the most part, um, you don't see it just develop at 18. Uh-huh. So when someone says my teenager just developed it, I have to say what changed in that individual's life. You don't just wake up one day and be selectively mute. If something traumatic happened and scared them, they moved to a new country, they spoke a new language, mm-hmm. something, but they always had a predisposition to this in some capacity. And in all my years of thousands of patients, I've never had somebody at 18 say they just developed it. I'm not saying it's not impossible. Of course, anything is, but I've never seen an 18 year old. I've seen a family member say with a, maybe an older, like an 11, 12 year old that she's just not speaking to her friends. And sometimes what ends up happening is when they go through um, transitions like elementary to middle school, Uh middle school to high school, especially if you're transitioning to a whole new school with a lot more people, that's when you see 
They're not talking to their teachers. They're not talking to peers because in their comfort of their other school, smaller school where they grew up with kids, it was, they were quiet. They were a little bit, maybe they were timid. They weren't initiative. They weren't elaborative, but they weren't selectively mute. So in that capacity, I question when you were reading that, maybe that's what happened with that 18 year old. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were buffered um, in a lot of their life with, I don't mean buffered in a bad way, just meaning they had their cocoon of life, you know, their school, their friends, their people, but they had a predisposition. Yeah. That's interesting. I was just wondering, I was thinking about it because um, you'd think like, even with COVID, (laughs) but I'm thinking like, if you don't go away to college and like all your friends do and um, you are already quiet, maybe you could somehow develop like selective mutism by not having to speak to anyone else. And I think, well, if- yeah, I, I, that right. Exactly. And also um, I'm not against home schooling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not against it, but what I am against is the lack of social communication opportunities. Right. So sometimes there's, um, families that come to us where the child is homeschooled yeah. and they have very little social communication opportunities. So we will see SM really, you know, kind of come out more when there is an opportunity. So, they weren't in a uh, school. So we, you know, we see that we see that at our camps, all of a sudden, they're in a group of five or six kids, and they can't communicate because they never had those opportunities. And the parents want them to communicate in these small groups that maybe they're doing locally or something. Mm -hmm. And they don't know how because they were they didn't have social communication opportunities. Yeah. So for anyone that is homeschooled, they have to have home, you know, or they're adults and they're reclusive. You have to have, you know, social communication opportunities else you will reinforce a predisposition that you already have. Right. Hmm. That is interesting. And COVID has made it a lot worse. Let's I be know. Honest, right. I, yeah, right? definitely. It's made it a lot worse because people that already may have been somewhat quiet or shy or timid rather, I don't like to label people as shy, but a timid temperament <laughs> Um, they've, you know, gone all this time, some of them a year almost where they haven't been really socially engaging and interactive. Um, it's really, really hard. And you see a lot of the anxieties coming out now we're getting more calls than ever. It's crazy. Yeah, I bet. Um, and you know, you brought up research and one reason I wanted to do this with you was for me, it's so much easier to talk about this than to sit down and write like something about it because, that's just how I am at this stage. I do better with speaking (laughs) about things and sharing my experiences. Yeah. But I agree, you know, research is needed and it's hard because there's a million things to research, but research takes resources. And so that's hard too, if you don't have the resources. And so SM is one of those, you know, challenges that it's not easy to get, you know, the resources to do the big studies that need to be done. So the goal is to hopefully be able to do that. But we get, I would say there isn't a day that goes by that in some sort of fashion, whether it's email or phone calls that we're not getting adults. And that's why I was passionate about reaching out to you about this and being willing to do it because I felt like there's so many adults out there. And if I can say anything to them to help them, it's, you know, there is hope and you can overcome this. There's no reason that you can. And there's great resources through the Selective Mutism Association there's great professionals out there and, you know, you can beat this, you can overcome this, you can achieve the goals that you want. Why? Cause we see it every day. Yeah. That's awesome that people are reaching out. Um, I think part it's of, amazing. yeah, I feel like as like a field, people need to change their language or like, including me. Um, Cause we talk about this being a childhood anxiety disorder um, like child specific and I think I we always talk about like children on this show and I think it makes it feel like less open to older people who are struggling with this or like I'm trying to think if I was an adult who was still struggling I think it would be hard for me to reach out to um, like an organization that seems geared towards children I think I would be afraid to reach out but <laughs> Maybe that's well, one of the things. Yeah. And, and I've, we've had some people 
you know, reach out and say, you know, we wish you had more resources. I mean, yeah. you know, the majority of individuals that come forth are younger. Let's be, they are, yeah. you know, for every adult that comes through 10 to 15 and it's, it's, you know, probably more, probably 20 to one. Um, but like on our website, we do say individuals and children, teens yeah. and adults, because we don't want them to feel, but you know, we've had people say, you know, why don't you do adult camps? I had an email come oh, through wow. like, yeah, like, why can't, you know, you do adult camps? And it's like, well, it's, we can, but what we have found, just like our groups that we do, the weekly groups, the adults don't tend to show up very, uh-huh. I mean, maybe one occasionally. Yeah. Um, whereas with the younger individuals, the, you know, the parents bring them or <laughs> encourage them, or they're not so avoidant. And some right. of the adolescents are showing up to the groups and we, we our, our adolescent group is the biggest group we have. And it's, wow. you know, they're, yeah. So we're getting more and more teens and we, you know, have camp up to 17 now, but the, and also know that the older the individual, the more different they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, they have their interests, they have their kind of in unique presentation. It's much harder to connect right. with other adults with SM as an adult than two, seven or eight year olds with SM. That's true. Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah. it is difficult to hold groups with adults. And I tried this for years. I mean, since honestly, 1998, 2000, been trying um, in terms of getting adults and they don't show up. We've had to cancel them as part mm-hmm. of our like family. We used to do <laughs> before um, when I used to run SMA or at the time it was selective mutism group, we used to do these family retreats every year and I rented a camp wow. and we wanted adults. Yeah. It was, um, it was, a uh, just, it was the family retreat, selective mutism family retreat and families would come from everywhere and we would encourage adults and we'd have these like little stations and we'd have adults and we'd have children. The adults don't show up or the older teens are like, you know, don't want to go. And so that's the problem we have is that you know, the caregivers try to reach out, try to get them to go. And then the adults don't want to, right. or the older teens. And then you've got your proactive ones. And we have found that individual therapy seems to be working best, at least mm-hmm. in the beginning to get them ready to be more part of a group Yeah, to deal with their challenges. So, yeah. I think you already said it, but could you say like where people can go to get help if they're. Oh yeah. For you know, adults that are looking for help and support, there's always the Selected Mutism Association, selectedmutism.org, um, our center, Smart Center, selectedmutismcenter.org, and we offer telehealth, and um, we have all sorts of resources and so forth like that, and in-person evaluations, and we have support groups, and you name it, we do it. So um, there's a lot of resources out there. Mm-hmm. And hopefully people will get the help because they certainly can overcome this. They don't need to stay suffering in silence. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. Well, you know, I love it. You know, I love chatting about SM. Yes, it was fun. <laughs>